it's okay to take six months off. It's okay to take four years off. That doesn't mean that you're not going to come back to your art. Welcome to Sisteria, a podcast about women and non-binary creatives and their experiences creating and consuming arts and culture. I'm your host, Steph Van Schilt, and well, I think it's safe to say that since we last released an episode, quite a bit has changed. So this season of Sisteria is going to sound a little bit different, recorded from my home in Melbourne. I'm currently recording in a little wardrobe in my bedroom right now, but the good news is that our guests are just as brilliant as ever. And honestly, what a way to start the season. Our first guest is my longtime friend and colleague, the all-round writer, genius, Eleanor Savage. Eleanor's work has been published all over the place. She has a PhD in creative writing. She's a Martin Bequest scholar for 2019-2021, and she teaches writing for a living. I spoke to Eleanor shortly after the release of her debut essay collection, Blueberries, which is a truly remarkable book that on more than one occasion has been described as defying categorization. It's a must read, so get your hands on a copy. We chatted about what it was like to launch a debut book during COVID times, her approach to writing personal essays, and her recent decision to quit Twitter. I started off by asking Eleanor how her past few months had been. This kind of past four months, I came back to Australia to do, you know, a semester of teaching, um, which I've been doing for the past few years. And to launch my book and do a kind of little mini book tour and of course everything kind of went online a few weeks after I arrived so there was a lot of um I guess and I had to move house several times in the past couple of months so I've had like a pretty unusual and stressful time with a lot of uncertainty um so I was yeah I've been like thinking about the questions that you sent through to kind of prepare for this interview and even just thinking about my book, Blueberries, just feels like thinking about ancient history. It's like, it's interesting, but it's totally abstract. <laughs> it's totally kind of not a part of my day-to-day life at the moment. Which is so upsetting because you came back <laughs> and it was supposed to be all about blueberries and nothing but blueberries and like celebrating it and promoting it and like hugging yeah. people and having people hug you and shower you with adoration. And yeah, instead I mean, you're like yeah. locked in several different houses. <laughs> right. That's the fantasy, right? That you like um your book comes out and everyone just kind of like pours champagne all over you. And <laughs> finally I'm the literary celebrity I you know I, I deserve to be or something. It's hard to separate like what I'm feeling towards the book now with like is it is it because of COVID and I haven't really had a chance to kind of engage with any readers in the real world or is it just like that's what happens when you bring your first book out I don't actually know because I have no experience of bringing a book out into the world um, especially a really kind of personal book um, but I suspect that it's maybe a combination of the two things that like you kind of have this idea when you're writing the book that you know it takes so much will 
and discipline to get through the labor of producing a book that's to a certain standard that you can kind of live with um, and then to get the book back <laughs> um, and see that oh you know like there are so many things that I would change now but I can't it's too late um, yeah you kind of think going through this process that the reward is going to be like the few months after the book comes out when everyone pours champagne all over you <laughs> but I think that maybe that's been the, like a kind of false goal throughout the whole process and the thing that you really get which is a really amazing reward for having written the book is that you get to see your book in print and that's a pretty um significant um a significant thing to kind of look at to hold um and to yeah relate to it's really um it's been a goal for a long time so it's it has been really gratifying in, in one sense have you got to see your book in the wild because i know a future sisteria guest laura jean mckay has talked a lot about how she also released a book at a similar time and was like, I didn't get to even see it in a bookshop before we went oh, into lockdown. Not really. Like I did a um, couple of signings at Brunswick Bound and Neighbourhood Books who are, you know, both of those bookshops are like some of my favourite bookshops on earth um, and they have amazing booksellers working there. Um, yeah, so I have been through and like done little signings there, but it's very much like <laughs> I did them in isolation. So you're kind of like walking in with gloves and a mask and you're like signing some books and you're like, cool, I feel like a cool celebrity right now. And then you're like, I don't even know if anyone's going to buy the book or if it's just going to like sit there because you have no idea what's happening in the bookshop because, you know, it's, it's close to the public. Like <laughs> people walking around being like, oh, is that the new book by Eleanor? <laughs> not happening <laughs> it's weird how you say about how it feels like ancient history because I feel like every day that passes the day before feels like ancient history because so much is happening so yeah, quickly so much kind of politically um economically and just individually personally like yeah I don't I mean every not everyone I know but like a lot of people that I know have their lives have been kind of turned upside down and a lot of things have been going on personally in the lives of people I really care about so that's sort of another element of like we're all feeling pretty fragmented and haggard and yeah the last thing you kind of want to think about is like your fragile literary ego and you know whether or not people love your book or not but it's like, legitimate it's kind of it's legitimate to have feelings and like how long did you work on blueberries for because that was like it's a labor of love oh, and yeah. like a labor of labor. Yeah, labor, like, labor worked on it for sure. so long. <laughs> um, I started it really late in uh, 2015, which sounds like really long. Um, I started the, the first uh, this particular essay um, in the book um, that's obviously called Blueberries. Um, yeah, I kind of started that, and then I kind of spent another year with that, and I wasn't sure like. I wasn't sure if it was going to be a collection or if this thing was going to be like maybe a really long thing that would be a whole book. Um, and then I started writing some other pieces that kind of started to fall, fall in line with it, with that piece formally. And then I sort of realized that I was working on a collection, but yeah, when I started, I wasn't sure if it was long form kind of experimental nonfiction or if it was something else. Um, but yeah, that was like five years ago, almost four and a half years ago so it, I guess I wasn't working on it full-time for four and a half years like a lot of that was um 
I, I do sit on my work for a pretty long time or the, you know, the work that I'm writing for books. I, I've done a lot of online journalism as well, which is, has a much quicker turnaround, obviously. Um, but yeah, I guess a lot of other things were happening in my life. I was trying to migrate. I got married. I was doing a PhD, finished that. So I was never kind of just writing that full time. I was also, you know, I guess that's just normal of life. Life happens when you're trying to write a book, so it takes a lot longer. Yeah, when I was younger, I, I think I just studied the rituals of other writers um, and just assumed that I could be like anyone else. You can just replicate someone else's kind of discipline. And so it's like, okay, Graham Greene writes 500 words every day and he pops out a book every year. And I'm like, I can't do or two books a year or something. I'm like, I don't, like, I'm not, when I write 500 words, that's not like I've just finished that page and I move on to the next page the next day. It's like maybe I write a thousand words in a day and I'm just going to put them in the bin because they were crap, you know, or I'm going to rewrite those 500 words um, 20 times before I'm happy with what's going on in those 500 words. But also some of the writing that you do, as you said before about the book, it's deeply personal. So it is hard and traumatic to relive some of the things that you do cover in your book. Yeah, there was one thing that was kind of, I mean, really emotionally difficult to write, and that was Yellow City. Um, but I was really ready to write that essay. I'd been kind of trying to write about, um, yeah, this event in my life that happened when I was um, 18 and I was assaulted. Um, I'd been trying to write about it for years or so like since it kind of happened although um I didn't really have a form I didn't really know how to tackle it without I didn't really know what had happened to me let alone how I would kind of translate that into a literary form that I believed I that could hold the the narrative or the non-narrative of what happened to me um so when I wrote that I wrote it in a month which is really short it was a really short time frame for me to produce it was 10,000 word essay um, and I wrote it in real time. So I think I was just like, I, I, I was in Portugal where the assault had happened and I was like going to the courthouse every day to find the documents and they were really hard to get my, you know, hands on um, because, you know, institutions and bureaucracies aren't really designed to kind of assist individuals. They're designed to kind of block individuals wills and desires um so I was writing about like the difficulty of de dealing with a, a foreign legal system and then the difficulty of kind of remembering and trying to inform myself about what happened to me um through the you know vagaries of memory and time um but it was it was difficult I had a really hard time that month but I it also was fine because I, I mean there were certain things that I learned about that event that I'd sort of suppressed or forgotten, I don't know which, um, that I just didn't include in the essay because I wasn't ready to talk about them or even, um, you know, even just think about them. So when I'm when I'm thinking about my own life writing, writing autobiographically about maybe difficult things or sensitive things, I have a really strong um, sense of my own boundaries and I have a sense of like, okay, I'm willing to share this much, but there are certain things that belong to me and I don't want to share. Um, 
yeah, and there have been a lot of questions about that kind of that question of self disclosure. Um, you know, since Blueberries came out, um, and I think there's maybe a lot of attention on women who write about bad things that have happened to them. I try to not like you know make it a story about the worst thing that's ever happened to me, but yeah, there's been a lot of attention around, like, do women know what they're doing when they self-disclose? Maybe they're self-exploiting, like, maybe they're re-traumatizing themselves and they're they're absolutely not capable of understanding what they're doing to themselves and it's quite paternalistic. Um, and in my case, I felt, you know, I knew exactly what I was doing. Um, I I knew how to kind of protect myself from the harder edges in that story and yeah, like self-disclosure is such a kind of mediated, controlled thing in writing. I'm not, you know, there are certain things that I want to share that aren't pretty um, about myself even and about like things that have happened that are bad or just things that I've thought that are cruel or wrong or bad. And that this is, now I'm sort of talking about the rest of the book, um, being honest about being wrong and being honest about like, kind of maybe occasional self-contempt or contempt for others that's ugly um I'm interested in documenting that difficult stuff because I don't really want a sanitized version of life to be part of my book I don't want to kind of position myself as like the most moral person who's ever existed because that would be a lie you know yeah you talk a lot about like the heaviness of truth and being and honesty and kind of mm-hmm. approaching these darker things but I also think and this comes across a lot when obviously we're friends we've been friends for a long time and I feel like when we have discussions our, our conversations are often quite deep and I find your opinion profound but you're also darkly darkly funny and I think that that humor came <laughs> across a lot in the book Did, was that purposeful or do you just think that that's a natural way that you right yeah I mean it's definitely I mean it's somewhat do you love all those compliments that I just gave you in there (laughs) we appreciated that um no it's definitely purposeful um and also a kind of part of my my voice for lack of a better word um that I've kind of deliberately kind of cultivated um I humor is important to me I think it's about pacing like you kind of, if you are, if you want to talk about maybe sadness, um, really miserable things, trauma, um, fractured memory, um, the kind of the violence of the past living in the present, like from an aesthetic point of view, you need to kind of like, you need to modulate it with something much lighter and humor, dark humor, gallows humor can be the thing that kind of, um, it kind of picks it up enough to kind of let the reader give them a, like, give them a fucking break for one second to just like feel a counter emotion so that they can dive back in. And it's the same for like, maybe talking about more kind of abstract ideas or intellectually challenging, you know, content. Um, I, I find that a lot of people maybe who are quite like interested in reading and are quite like, you know, highly intelligent often resist um, maybe like what we call theory 
and resist a lot of the kind of um, abstract thinking that theory demands of you. And I think they do that because often the prose is crap, you know, like the way that um, that really highly trained academic writers write is often uh, just flat. It's like porridge. It's really convoluted, uh, bad syntax, no voice and no elevation, like no humor. And so I want to like, I want to do some of that abstract thinking or push my push myself intellectually. Um, you know, I'm not a trained philosopher or something, so it's not like, you know, it's, it's not the most scholarly work on earth. But I am interested in doing kind of abstract thinking, but I want to do it in a way that's like, like you can think abstractly in a vernacular, you know. You can use um, ordinary language. Um, you can use humour to make it interesting aesthetically interesting as well as intellectually kind of challenging yeah so humor is really important uh to to modulate the kind of heavier heavier material you talk about academic writing there and just academia in general you did a um phd as well you just mentioned that how was that for you Uh, I really like I really resist academic writing and I think it's just it's such a problem with with the kind of like the thesis form that you're kind of slotted into. Um, I, I love the research. I love the thinking. I love the ideas. Um, I really hate writing essays, you know, or chapters of thesis chapters in this chapter. I will dot, dot, dot. And then I will dot, dot, dot. And this is like a kind of essential part of the form that you're, that you're taught is absolutely necessary um, so that you can, you know, pass your degree, and it's important to pass your degree. You know, otherwise, otherwise, mm-hmm. what happens? You get <laughs> you just end up with lots of debt and no degree instead of a degree yeah, with a lot of debt. Exactly. Yeah. So the academic writing form was really difficult for me to work in. I really, um, I struggled against it a lot. Um, and it's not the yeah, it's not the thinking; it's the form. And I wish. It we're a little bit different and I know that like some universities are you know because I did my PhD in creative writing I know that some universities encourage a more kind of creative approach I did mine at a research university um yeah and some of the universities are like maybe you can do it in a kind of um hybrid form but even then the hybrid form ends up containing the kind of the syntax of academic academia um yeah, so I, I, I learned so much, and I, I grew so much, um, and it was a really important thing for me to have done. It gave me time to think and to write and to read, which is a gift that, like, I mean, no, nothing else in my, you know, nothing in my history or my future will kind of provide the structure for that kind of freedom just for a few years um so it was really amazing but yeah man academic writing sucks <laughs> so rigid it's like applying scientific scientific principles and rubric to something that when it's creative writing is obviously far more creative and I find that hard kind of a scientific kind to of form. and you're like you know what's your methodology and it's like well I mean if I'm going to be like materially honest about my methodology, it's like, I'm going to read a few hundred books. (laughs) 
I'm going to, um, you know, lose some of them along the way and the library will get angry with me and I'm going to take lots of notes and type <laughs> them. Um, this is my, you know, my working methodology is that I'm going to read a lot and then I'm going to like struggle to write a thesis, which is not, you know, and that idea of a methodology comes from science and it's a really important part of the scientific method. Um, it doesn't quite, it's not that useful. I don't know. Well, I don't know if it's that useful for, um, to apply to creative work, but whatever, that's between me and my university. I think it's you and your methodology. <laughs> You've worked on both your PhD and your book while being transient and living between two countries and migrating. Can you talk about that experience a little bit? Personally, I don't have that experience and I've always looked upon you as this kind of cosmopolitan traveller of the world. I visited you when you lived in Vietnam. You write quite a bit about that transient lifestyle in Blueberries. You're about to go home to Athens, Greece. Can you talk about the impulse to live that way? The impulse to live that way is probably that um, I guess I've never felt a really strong sense of continuity or um, or like hominess. Um, I moved a lot when I was a kid. My dad's my dad migrated to Australia from England, so I think there's been like um, my mum's family. Like I'm you know I'm close with her like immediate family. But beyond that, I don't have any, you know, I don't really have a strong kind of family network. Um, so there's been a lot of kind of splitting off in my family line and no no heart. So I don't feel like there's a place where I return to and I think like everything's in its right place and I'm at home. Um, and I think that's maybe made it possible for me to feel untethered in a way that, has permitted me to take maybe um, more risks than um, people with more solid kind of um, grounding in a place yet. But it's also, you know, propelled me into this kind of like precarious, like, um, yeah, really transient kind of existence. And it's, it's been a bit exhausting. Like, it's really funny that you say, like, oh, I look to you as this, like, glamorous, like, <laughs> cosmopolitan globetrotter. And I, f- I just feel like I don't know where my undies are. Like, I'm everything is so disorganized and I'm just kind of, you know, flying more than I would like to, um, trying to pick up piecemeal work to kind of make it work. So I'm really looking forward to, um, yeah, like, I've lived in three houses in the past three months. Like, that's not fun. um so I'm really looking forward to going somewhere you know like Athens where I've kind of uh lived for the past three years more more or less um to go back there and like stay in my apartment and just like be with my undies and be (laughs) (laughs) it is important to have a home it turns out you know (laughs) Um, it gives you a lot of I'm I'm learning that maybe my kind of resistance to having a home was just a kind of result of not having a really strong sense of one. Um, but the past few years I've become really, really domestic and really yearning for a time when I can just sit still and, and research um, and write and build a community and, you know, build a real life. 
how does a day look for you then? So you talk about wanting to sit and research and read, but also how you have been transient and moving house. How do you continue to write and make work on a day-to-day basis? What does a day look like for Eleanor Savage? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it looks really different um, at different times of my kind of work cycles. So when I'm like, I guess when I've been teaching here in Melbourne, um, it looks like doing a lot of emails most days and um, and doing maybe some paid writing commissions and stuff. When I have a bit more freedom, um, I I write in the morning first thing when I wake up because that's when my brain works. Um, and I'll just kind of write until lunch or a bit later. And that's, I just sort of write until I get distracted and my concentration kind of peels out um and then I'll have a break maybe go for a walk do some housework whatever and then come back and do a bit more like maybe admin stuff in the afternoon um I'm trying really hard not to work evenings and weekends these days but at times that's not really possible so for the past like four months I've been just working weekends and nights and losing my mind a little bit well I think it's hard when we're all locked in our houses oh, totally. and it all like every day bleeds into the next every hour bleeds into the next so kind of right fixed, yeah I'm either like horizontal staring at a tv show or I'm like I'm just gonna work incessantly non-stop yeah. but that also could be that also could be my illness but that's that's its own that's its own conversation <laughs> um <laughs> I just realized I was like hmm that's very uh a bipolar response. <laughs> oh, just when when things are going well, I just like would happily, um, yeah, just start at seven in the morning and go through till the afternoon, and then then the afternoon doing, you know, getting my life in order for the next day. Yeah, so we'll see if that ever that routine ever returns. <laughs> oh, it'd be nice. Very nice. When you are kind of stuck at home. One thing that you can get addicted to, I'm like, I've been guilty of this, is uh, social media, right? Just like scrolling and scrolling and incessantly scrolling. But you recently quit Twitter. Was that a deliberate act of self-care, do you think? Or <laughs> Yeah, why? definitely. I was just trying to eliminate everything in my life. Feeds my anxiety. Or you were like, I've done my blueberries promo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, partly it's like, this is like, strong sense that one of your responsibilities as a writer to kind of like help your publicist and help your publisher like actually be a a helpful author in the process of publicizing your book um it's kind of you know it's rude to just not be on social media and expect someone to do that publicity work for you um so part of being online is like you you're trying to reach audiences and people who might buy your book um and but and so I was like doing a lot of that work and I've done a lot of that work for a long time just trying to push my work out into the world and find readers um but another thing that happens when you're online is that you like you end up just getting I mean you end up creeping on strangers and getting angry about their opinions and I don't want to be angry about someone's opinion who like lives in America and I don't even know their name like it's a 63 followers yeah 63 followers and I'm like I can't believe that person said that thing on Twitter 
you reach a point and you're like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do this. And I don't want to be this person who's like stressed about the existence of someone who I disagree with. Like it's so unhealthy. Um, yeah. So I also kind of, I was, I quit like drinking wine because it's like not fun when you can't hang out with your friends. It's just like, I was just watching Grey's Anatomy and drinking glasses of red wine and COVID. Which if that's, if that's your like. Oh, I mean, it was really fun at the time. Lifestyle choice. Yeah. (laughs) Go for it. It was great. (laughs) But my partner quit drinking and I was like, just starting to do it alone. And I was like, this is not fun. And it just, even if you you know you're not waking up with a hangover, you're waking up with a sense of like fogginess and I don't know, just anxiety about like what what am I doing with my time? And I don't want to be productive with all my time. I, I kind of need to learn how to um, just take time off and kind of flop around and do nothing. Um, but in order to do that, you know, I don't want to do it on social media and I don't want to do it with a glass of wine in my hand and I don't want to be binge watching TV. I'd rather just, you know, read a book or hang out with my partner or just like, like sleep. I don't know if anyone's heard of that, but sleep is really good. (laughs) (laughs) Get it when you can. I also don't understand for me, I'm not super present on social media because it really just stresses me out in general. Like I get almost social anxiety from the idea of posting anything. I don't know how people can post all the time. There's so many layers to why it's bad, you know, like there's this, there's the thing of just being watched, right. And exposing yourself and having, I mean, I just said that I like spend my time on Twitter forming opinions about people who, you know, whose existence is quite like, irrelevant to my life and but you because you're doing that you have an acute awareness that other people are doing that towards you right and so you're just participating is putting you in a vulnerable position um to the kind of cruelty of others and it puts you in a position where you're more likely to be cruel yourself and I don't want to be cruel and I don't want others to be cruel to me and I want to be kind of free of the idea of being watched as well and so much of our society now is structured around surveillance and I think it's actually just damaging us very deeply um it's damaging our relationships to ourselves and our relationships to other people I think that trying to disengage from just the electronic surveillance of everyday life is going to be really good for just psychic well-being and then there's the and then there's the other thing, which is that like everything you post is being collected as data, like it's being sold by corporations on terms that you'll never become aware of, and that's like deeply worrying. I kind of sound like a '90s like conspiracy <laughs> girl, like that film The Net. You know, I didn't want to say it. I was like, yeah, I was like, she's got a baseball cap on, channeling <laughs> your Sandra Bullock over a keyboard. You know, that's the 90s. literally everything on our phones like the phones themselves Mm -hmm. everything like but and at the same time I feel like we've seen recently with the Black Lives Matter movement how important social media can be for political movements but this is why it's so worrying it's like this is how I'm accessing all of my information about how um how I can participate how I can assist and support and help and the fact that this is happening inside a 
this is a private space. It's not a public space. None of the kind of like obligations to one another exist in this space. None of our kind of like um, freedoms are protected in this space. All of this information that's being shared, which is what I completely rely on, is information that's now owned by corporations. Oh my God. I sound like Tyler Durden. Oh, well. That's so good. But is this all part of, I'm going to talk about your tiny letter or sorry, your newsletter a bit later because you wrote that for a while. Mm. Um, in that, because you've finished it up recently, mm. in that you talk about like trying something along the lines of like making yourself smaller. Yeah. And obviously you shut down the newsletter. Is that kind of all part of that same I was going to say theory, but I don't want you to sound like a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> that same kind of uh, like inclination. Yeah, it's, that was my decision to stop writing. I was writing this kind of uh, weekly newsletter for a year and a half, maybe two years, maybe three, I don't know. Um, yeah, and I decided to kind of wrap it up recently. I mean, I've been pretty burnt out from this whole COVID thing. Um, and I was finding writing a weekly newsletter more and more kind of onerous rather than when I started it it was really fun um yeah so it's not so I I closed it I finished it not because I thought that someone was collecting and selling the information that was in it but more that like I was I don't know I want to spend more time learning a bit more deeply about the prison system the economics of the prison system um, I want to, yeah, I want to maybe stop just commenting and writing um, for a public or a, a really limited public and think about what, like, maybe kind of spend more time formulating what I want to say. Um, basically, I just want to work on my next book and I want to do a lot of research and I don't want to, um, I don't want to reveal and open myself up to others before I feel like I have something worthwhile to say I think it I think it does relate though because you were saying about collecting information and getting information from Twitter and you said that you wanted to think more deeply and be more specific with your research so distancing yourself from that platform and that kind of information feed and focusing on another I think it relates Mm. I don't think it's part of a grand conspiracy theory of yours <laughs> yeah I think it's probably I'm just feeling a very strong and maybe this is like a symptom of having a really personal book out in the world I'm feeling a very strong urge to kind of have a barrier of privacy um in my life and maybe spend a bit more time like nourishing my home life and my like the relationships that I'm you know value the most um there's a the Italian philosopher Maurizio Lazzarato um, writes about this. I'll just find the quote, actually. I was just about to say exactly the yeah. same thing. <laughs> so, I mean, we are kind of touching on the subject of, like, artists as workers rather than as these kind of, like, princely little lords that, jump around with a feather in their hat um 
writers as workers, artists as workers. So um, Lazzarato says that as a worker, or an artist is simultaneously personally responsibility personally responsible for the education and development, growth, accumulation, improvement, and valorization of the self in its capacity as capital. He says this is achieved by managing all its relationships, choices, behaviors according to the logic of a costs slash investment ratio and in line with the law of supply and demand. So that's like he's talking about in Foucault, it's called capitalization. And it's where you kind of in the in in the experience of an artist and an artist being a worker, what you're doing is that you're turning yourself into you're literally yourself into a kind of permanent multi-purpose business, right? And that's kind of part of this thing where as a writer, you're doing this kind of self-promotion, you're online, you're like keeping abreast of the literary currents and debates and you're um, participating in them. And, you know, and part of this thing about capitalization is, is that it, encourages you or it kind of like demands that you um yeah you make these cost benefit analyses around the work that you're doing and I think that that's really hostile to creative production I think if you're thinking like will this this thing sell to an audience then maybe the thing is not the thing that you should be writing I mean of course you know you need to eventually find a readership for your work but the work should be good on its own terms not just kind of like market well market researched um yeah so kind of trying now I, I feel like I've spent the past 10 years kind of scrub scrambling together um just producing so much work and um and and working in so many different kind of um fields to support myself and I'm now just feeling quite raw and exposed and I kind of want to like bundle myself up um and yeah do some proper work that was a perfect segue into our arrogant aunt question so arrogant aunt is our segment where we answer a listener question with an authority we just don't have it's an exercise in imposter syndrome for all of us (laughs) the question is from Kat and I'll play that now Hi, this is Kat. I wanted to ask about existing in the world as a working creative. It's hard at the best of times, but I'm feeling super disheartened right now. It's stressful thinking about money. So do your guests have any tips on finances and being a creative person or do I just give up? Thank you. Um, don't give up. Um, also, I don't have any financial tips. I'm not like, you know, that good at money. Um, but I do... I do think that I have something useful, maybe possibly useful, which is that I think in my experience, most of the people that I know who've turned their creativity or their art into a profession really tend to overwork and they have pretty high standards um, of themselves and they kind of, um, they're pretty goal oriented and I guess what I was saying before about this thing where you're kind of, you become this constant, ever-present, um, multi-purpose business when you're, you know, you're, you're making a profession out of your creativity. 
Um, and I think it's really important to kind of remind yourself that it's okay to take six months off. It's okay to take four years off. That doesn't mean that you're not going to come back to your art. Um, you have to kind of like prioritize your material life. And if that involves like, yeah, you need to go and do some work that's not related to your art. If you need to spend more time caring for your family members or the people that you care about, like life kind of has to take precedence in times of crisis. And, and it doesn't mean that you're, you know, like we just force ourselves to be productive all the time and it's exhausting. Um, so yeah, like this idea of, I feel it very acutely as well. Like if I stop writing for six months, am I even going to be a writer? Or like maybe I'm just quitting, but I think that's maybe the wrong way to look at it. Like living your life is always going to um, kind of, if you're yeah, an artistic person, it's always going to feed your artwork in some way. It's going to give you a new perspective on, on you know, it's going to bring something to your creative practice when you have the mental and physical energy to get back to it. So it's not so much about money, um, but maybe making time to, yeah, focus on money if you need to and, and take time away. And sometimes I think the having a side hustle that isn't creative related that maybe helps finance your creative endeavors offers you a bit more freedom than it does. Absolutely. Yeah. Trying to pursue purely a creative path because it's, it's a very tough terrain right now. So perhaps finding work if you don't have work already or maintaining work that is very dry and very boring and not the creative profession that you would prefer to be doing might help facilitate that creative profession some more. Totally. When I was trying to like kind of earn a substantial part of my income from writing, um, I just found myself like I never actually had time to write what I wanted to write. I was just constantly filing kind of commissions. And some of them were interesting and some of them were like, I don't even know why I'm putting my name on this. And so you kind of feel like it's like, well, I might as well work at a fish and chip shop. You know, like it's so not related to what I want to do. So I might as well just get a job at a fish and chip shop and spend my weekends working on my poetry or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I think that just like being prioritizing, like just getting things sorted out in your, you know, in your real material life, make it possible for you to um, to dedicate some part of yourself to your creative practice when you can. And I think knowing when perhaps you don't have that creative impulse anymore and you need to stop is also valuable. And anyway. yeah, just like you with your tiny letter, which is going to, I'm going to segue into our shout out. So the Sisteria shout-out is when we give a shout-out to something that has been giving us joy recently. Uh, mine has got to be your newsletter, Little Throbs, which you have now stopped, but also Anne Helen Peterson's newsletter and just Anne Helen Peterson's writing in general. She's an American cultural critic. She writes a lot for BuzzFeed. She writes a lot on celebrity, but she also has been doing a lot of coverage of uh, COVID in smaller towns, protests in smaller towns. She's just very interesting. So the only two newsletters that I really read as well as subscribe to have been Eleanor's and Anne Helen Peterson's. So Eleanor, what have you got? What's your shout out? What have you got? Well, I guess in COVID, we're thinking more about like um, supporting small businesses and giving, you know, like 
making purchases that put money directly back into the economy and in people's pockets, in workers' pockets, right? And my thinking around that is like, what is the smallest business? The smallest business is an artist and the only worker an artist exploits is themselves. So I've um, been kind of thinking about how I can um, support my friends and kind of warm acquaintances who have lost a lot of work and maybe don't have many um, employment prospects in the next kind of couple of years. Um, so I recently purchased my first, like, major artwork um, by oh. Melbourne artist Devika Billimoria. Um, Devika is a like, photographer and performance artist and a dancer and they do lots of really beautiful, interesting, kind of playful um, stuff. And I just bought this um, beautiful, like a print, a, a photography print um, of a prize-winning uh, photo. photo called Pool um, So my, yeah, my shout out is um, Devika Villamoria's work and buying art from artist friends to help them, you know, just support themselves through this desperate time. 100% stand by that shout out. That's why I, this whole Sisteria season exists <laughs> to support the likes of you who have released books during this <laughs> shitty time. But also I've always wanted to to take our friendship oh, to the next level. in yeah. front of the microphone <laughs> <laughs> to the next level. <laughs> Eleanor Savage, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Yeah. Thank you so much for being yeah. on Sisteria. Ciao. <laughs> Sisteria is supported by the Melbourne City Council Arts Grants Program and recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and to the elders of all the lands this podcast reaches. Subscribe to Sisteria everywhere and follow us at SisteriaPod. Links to everything discussed in the episode are available at SisteriaPodcast.com. Our theme music is by Rainbow Chan. The song is called Last and it's from her album Spacings. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and we hope you tune in again soon.